0: I just want you to know how encouraging it is to hear you guys singing so loudly with such encouragement and enthusiasm. It is simply a blessing. I'm so glad that we are able right now to gather and worship in person. So this morning, I'm going to give a message to you today that I've called Words to Live By out of Romans chapter 2. In 2006, a comedy movie starring Will Ferrell, opened with much anticipation in theaters around the country. And this movie, if you're familiar with it, was called Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. Shake and bake, right? And while the setting for Talladega Nights focused on the world of racing, primarily through the sport of NASCAR, the main theme of this movie actually centered around what motivates people to do the things that they do. In the beginning of the movie, a 10-year-old Ricky Bobby is given a piece of advice from his delinquent and derelict father who told him, always remember, if you ain't first, you're last. And inspired by this grammatically clumsy mantra, Ricky Bobby then works his way up to the pinnacle of the NASCAR world. He achieves great fame, success, and notoriety as a NASCAR driver. He has everything that our popular culture would deem to be important. But in the movie, predictably, Ricky's success would be short-lived because after a new challenger, a better race car driver enters the scene, Ricky's world is turned upside down. And it's during this low point in his life that Ricky's father re-enters the picture. And after a family dinner at Applebee's goes south, Ricky chases his father into the street and yells to him and says, hey, all those races that I won, that was for you. Do you know that? I did just like you told me. If you ain't first, you're last. And then, what I consider to be the philosophical climax of this movie, Reese Bobby, that's Ricky's father, replies back to his exasperated son and he says, This, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. You can be second, you can be third, fourth, you can even be fifth. And in great puzzlement, Ricky replies back, What are you talking about? I live my whole life by that. What am I supposed to do now? I think it would be helpful if we all put ourselves in Ricky's shoes for a moment. He just found out that everything that he had based his life on was nonsense. The whole system of beliefs and motivations upon which he had built his foundation, it was faulty. The rug had just been pulled out from underneath him, and now he had no idea what to do or where to go. Now, how many of us can say that we've been there before? How many of us have gone about living life based on, based on something that we later found out to be completely bogus? There will come a time in each of our lives where we find out that something that we had believed to be true, it, it wasn't exactly true. Something that we thought to be reality wasn't exactly real. And what we believed to be right may not have been exactly right. And in some cases it was completely wrong. You see, the world around us is littered with lies and falsehoods, each of which are, are trying to sway us toward a system of beliefs that contradicts the Word of God. And many of these lies, they're packaged in convenient little cliches or sayings. And instead of investigating these soundbites and comparing them to Scripture like we should, we often just accept them as truth because they sound good. But we must not allow pop culture and man-centered theology to knock us off the foundation of Scripture. We must know what God says, and we must stand on it as the truth for our lives. We must let God be the one who provides us the words to live by. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Romans, he goes on the offensive, and he attacks many of the world's deceptions and falsehoods. So this morning, I invite you to open your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Romans chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Now the passage is going to be up there on the screen for you to read along. And as is our usual practice, I'm going to be reading today out of the English Standard Version. So Romans chapter 2, starting at verse 3, the Word of God says this. Do you suppose, O man... according to his works. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, for too long we have been shaped and influenced by the sinful and antagonistic world around us. For too long we have set aside your word and we have lived in ways that dishonor and displease you. But you are so good and you are so gracious and you are so patient with us And your word is always here, ready to bring us back and to set us on a solid foundation. I pray today, Lord, during this time that you will highlight and make known to us any lies in our hearts that need to be corrected. Show us any sin and unrighteousness that needs to be confessed and forgiven and repented of. Lord, please fill our hearts and our minds with truth and bring about life change through proper interpretation and application of our text today. We thank you for the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, which reconciles us to you through faith alone. And we ask this all in his holy and precious name. Amen. Now, as we begin to break down and discuss our passage this morning in Romans chapter 2, let me give you just a, a quick rundown of what Paul has established in his letter leading up to this point. As was his usual custom, Paul opens his letter with a greeting to his intended audience, which were the Christians living in the city of Rome. He then, see, he then follows that introduction by stating his strong desire to come and visit the Romans and to, to finally get to see them face to face. And he concludes his introduction by sharing with the Romans how much he desires to work with them in spreading the gospel to the lost people in this great city of Rome. And this subsequently leads Paul to remind his audience that it is the gospel that contains the power of God to salvation for all who believe. Regardless of your race, your ethnicity, your social class, or your standing, all people can be saved and made righteous in the eyes of God through faith and faith alone in Christ Jesus. And then immediately after that, starting in verse 18 of, of Romans chapter 1, Paul begins to take his letter in a drastically different direction. In stark contrast to his reminder about the gospel, Paul begins to describe how God's wrath is manifested or made evident among those who deny God and continually sin against him. He then spends the next 15 verses describing the downward spiral of man caught in a pattern of increasing and intensifying sin which then tees us up for our portion of Paul's letter today in chapter 2. And it's here in chapter 2, Paul begins an argument with a hypothetical person, which he refers to in the passage as man. And this man is meant to represent all people who, while having a knowledge of God, they judge others while at the same time they refuse to hold themselves to that same standard to which they hold other people. Some commentators will refer to this hypothetical person in Paul's letter, this man, they refer to him as the critical moralizer, which simply means someone who judges the moral behavior of others while disregarding his or her own immorality. So let's read together again, just verse 3. It says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So the first lie here that we see Paul expose for us, it can be described as do as I say and not as I do. Now, we have a word for people who say one thing or hold other level of behavior or morality, but they neglect to apply that standard to themselves. What's the word that we use for for people like that? Let me give you a hint. OK, it's commonly used and directed at those of us who are Christians that word, right? It's cringeworthy when we say it, isn't it? It's hypocrite. That's, that's the word. Now, in American culture, the common definition of hypocrite, it's deviated a little bit from the classical definition. So a better understanding of how the word is most commonly used today is a hypocrite is a person whose actions belie their stated beliefs. If we we're going to simplify it, we could say it's really about being inconsistent, It's about having a lifestyle that betrays one's stated convictions. And we all know the type, right? We've all seen it. We've all experienced it. In fact, the other day I read a great example of this. And it happened in Berkeley, California. There was a man whose name really isn't important, but he's the current president of a local teachers union, which is called the Berkeley Foundation of Teachers. And this union president has for a long time stood in staunch opposition to students going back to school in person until all teachers in the, in the area are vaccinated. Now, I'm not here to comment on his position. That comp- position's completely fine for him to have and to stand up for. That's all well and good. But the problem, you see, occurs when a video surfaces of this same teachers union president walking hand in hand with his own child as he dropped her off at in-person preschool. Now, this man may have a perfectly reasonable and logical explanation for why he believes other children should not be in school while his child should be in in in-person school. But I can tell you that on appearances alone, things don't feel very consistent, do they? What it looks like is that the person is saying one thing while refusing to live by those same convictions. Now surely there are more egregious examples of people being hypocritical, but I wanted to show you that the lie of do as I say and not as I do has far-reaching implications. In our passage here in chapter 2, Paul uses a series of rhetorical questions to call out the critical moralizer. And this person, according to Paul, is someone who judges people for their sins while committing those same sins themselves. The critical moralizer agrees that there's an an objective standard of morality, but he has somehow convinced himself that while everyone else is subject to this standard, he is somehow exempt. Now, living in such an inconsistent way is problematic for everyone, regardless of their religious beliefs. But there is a grave danger for the Christian in particular to live in a way that is antithetical to or against the gospel message that we proclaim. The problem isn't so much the damage that it does to our reputation or to our good name, although those things are important. But the greatest issue is our failure to represent Christ and to be his ambassadors. Living hypocritically damages our testimony and it harms the name and the message of Jesus. But the million-dollar question for me, though, is this. Why is living hypocritically so easy to do? I want you to listen to how pastor and author John R.W. Stott, how he described the plight of this critical moralizer in his commentary on the book of Romans. He says this, I quote, Paul uncovers in these verses a strange human foible, namely our tendency to be critical of everybody except ourselves. We are often as harsh in our judgment of others as we are lenient toward ourselves. We work ourselves up into a state of self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behavior of other people while the very same behavior seems not nearly so serious when it is ours rather than theirs. We even gain a vicarious satisfaction from condemning in others the very faults we excuse in ourselves. People are forced to keep themselves in their own favor by observing the imperfections of other men. This device, Stott will go on to say, it enables us simultaneously to retain our sins and our self-respect. It is a convenient arrangement, but also both slick and sick. What Mr. Stott is getting at is that living hypocritically comes naturally because sin is part of our fallen human nature. Nobody probably admits that do as I say and not as I do is their personal slogan or their mantra, right? That's not on anybody's bumper. It isn't something that anyone would truly be proud of, but it's exactly what we're telling people with our lives when we hold others to a morality that we don't equally apply to ourselves. The foundational truth behind hypocrisy is not that we simply struggle at behaving consistently. The true issue is that our hearts are corrupted at their core by sin. The prophet Jeremiah, in the 17th chapter of of the book named after him, reveals this. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So if the problem originates in our hearts, how do we fix it? And the answer is, we don't. We can't. We have absolutely no ability to affect any true significant change regarding the level of corruption and sin in our hearts. But God can. And He does. And this is why He sent His Son, and why the Gospel message is so critically important. This is exactly what God was foreshadowing when He spoke through the prophet Ezekiel. In the 11th chapter of Ezekiel, he said this, And I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Now listen to this next part, okay? This is great. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Now notice how God said that he would give his people a new heart. And after this heart transplant, we'll call it, then they would obey him and follow his word. And this is pivotal for us in understanding the gospel and to understanding why salvation through faith in Christ is the only way. When someone becomes aware of their sin, when someone becomes aware of the corruption in their heart, when they know that their sin deserves death, And that there's no way to live righteously enough to please God on their own. That's when they truly see the glory of the gospel. That Christ lived the life that we couldn't live, Christ obeyed the law that we could not obey, Christ perfectly fulfilled the moral standard that we could not fulfill. Jesus Christ was never a hypocrite because he was perfectly consistent. His actions always aligned with his words, and his words were always in agreement with God's revelation in Scripture, which we call the Old Testament. And by placing our faith in Christ as both our Lord and our Savior, the perfect righteousness of Christ, his impeccable consistency, his irrefutable sinlessness, those things are imputed to or given to us, attributed to us as if we had achieved them ourselves, and the just punishment that we deserved for our sin, well, that was placed upon Jesus on the cross. Therefore, God maintained His justice while perfectly demonstrating His mercy and His grace. And as Christ becomes our Lord and Savior, God equips us with that new heart. A heart in which God now resides through His Holy Spirit. And while this doesn't mean that we will never again be guilty of living hypocritically or inconsistently, it does mean that we will never be content or satisfied or comfortable in living that way. The gospel of Jesus Christ is always relevant. It is always helpful for us to hear because we need to be reminded that although growing in righteousness from the inside out is often slow and gradual, it's always significant and noticeable. The critical moralizer lives life as if the only sins that deserve judgment are the sins of others. But we know that that's a lie, don't we? And it could not be further from the truth. It was our sin that brought Jesus to the cross and held him there. And it's our lives which are now free from condemnation and from the curse of sin that are meant to glorify and honor Christ. And as our love for Jesus, as our understanding for His word, and as our obedience to His commands increases, this lie of do as I say and not as I do, well, that begins to fall farther and farther away from us. Instead, our mantra and our mission becomes this, as Christ says, so I will do. But you see, hypocrisy is not the only warning that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 2. Let's look again at verse 4, and we'll see a second rhetorical question that Paul raises. He says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So the, the second lie that Paul exposes could be stated as this. It's only wrong if you get caught. Now, once again, I don't think many people would confess that they live by this slogan, but I can show you that more often than not, we abide by it. Now, on your way to church this morning, this is the participation part of the message, okay? On your way to church this morning, you probably passed a speed limit sign, didn't you? How many of you perfectly obeyed every speed limit sign that you encountered? Now, This is an imperfect illustration because I know that we have some very conscientious and safe drivers. And I know that some of you obeyed every speed limit sign. I also know that some of you live so close to the church, you didn't even pass a speed limit sign on the way to church this morning. But for many of us, doing 50 miles an hour in a 45 mile an hour speed limit zone, especially when everyone else is zipping around us at 60 miles an hour, that's probably pretty common for most of us. And if a police officer would have pulled me over this morning doing 50 in a 45, hypothetically speaking, I'm not admitting to that, I'm just saying, had he pulled me over and had I been doing 50 in a 45, he would have been well within his rights to give me a ticket for my failure to abide by the speed limit. But luckily for me, hypothetically, I was not pulled over this morning. And while I know that I'm not technically supposed to speed, I'm usually not living in deep regret when I make it to church without getting a ticket, even though may have hypothetically been speeding. You see, speeding is one of those little things in life where we feel it's only wrong if we get caught. Now, we can also identify this same idea in the world of sports, too, can't we? For those of you who are football coaches, you'll like this one. Now, it's possible, it's probable, that on every single play, if the referees wanted to, they could find an instance of holding to call. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever seen an offensive lineman or a defensive back ever come up to an official after they were not called for holding and confess their transgression to the official and say, You should throw the flag. I was guilty of that violation. That just doesn't happen. We don't ever see that. You see, these players, they know that they're guilty of holding, but they usually slink off the field and they usually have a pretty wry smile on their face when they do it because they know that they... Got away with it. In fact, there are certain NFL players and NFL teams who have a a reputation for holding. I'm not going to call out any Dallas Cowboy names or anything. (laughs) I'm just kidding. And, And the more that some of these unnamed teams get away with holding, the more they do it. And I think that this mentality speaks exactly to what Paul is referring to here in verse 4. Now, Paul is obviously not talking about football. That's just an illustration. But he is speaking on the human tendency to sin and to increase in the frequency and the intensity of that sin until something stops us. Now, I always find the world of undercover surveillance fascinating If you've ever watched a documentary or a show about organized crime or the mob, you will undoubtedly find that the authorities will either stake out a location, they'll set up a camera, or they'll install a microphone, which we call a bug for you non-detectives. And they do this so that they can watch and they can listen and they can gather evidence of the crimes that these groups of people are committing. Now, if these groups of criminals knew that they were being watched or recorded, we can assume that they probably would have made some changes to their behavior. Now, they may not have stopped committing their crimes, but they certainly would have changed how they were communicating about those things. But when they are unaware or they are ignorant of the potential for evidence to be collected and to to mount against them, if you will, they move forward as if what they perceive to be as inaction from the police is basically the same thing as permission to continue in their lawlessness. And what we see is that it's ignorance and pride and carelessness that are often the primary factors in organized crime families eventually getting caught. But you see, ignorance and pride and carelessness is not exclusive to criminals. The mob has not cornered the market on those rebellious attitudes and attributes. As Paul makes clear in his address to the critical moralizer in chapter 2, continuing on in a life of unrepented sin, it is at best horribly presumptuous toward God. But I don't think that this translation most accurately describes Paul's point. You see, the, the Greek word that the ESV translates as presume would actually better be described as to despise, to scorn, or to look down upon. I believe that that definition is a more accurate representation. If you look at other biblical translations, you will see the word to scorn there in some of the other translations. So, that is a valid interpretation of that Greek word. This means that sin by any one of us against God, particularly when we know God's law, either through his word or through our conscience, to sin is to despise God and to scorn his kindness his tolerance, and his patience. It means that we are trying to take advantage of God, that we are trying to pull one over on him, like we're trying to do 100 miles an hour in a school zone, thinking that the police don't really care or that they won't ever see it. And what's even worse is that we completely misunderstand why God is so patient with us. We know that if God wanted to, he could zap us, He could strike us down the very instant that we sinned against Him. He could easily throw that penalty flag or or pull us over and show us that He is completely aware of our rebellion. But oftentimes, our crimes and our sins against God, they seem to go unpunished. Now why is that? Why does God allow us to think that we get away with it? Well, there's, there's really two answers to this question. The, the first answer we find at the end of verse 4. We see that God is kind and forbearing and patient toward us, that he loves us. He wants us to acknowledge our wrongdoing. He wants us to admit our sins to him and then ask for forgiveness and seek repentance. So that we might turn away from that sin and not do it again. He wants us to see how we have despised him, how we have tried to take advantage of him. He wants us to learn from our sins so that our hearts will grow more inclined to obey him. He doesn't strike us down and judge us immediately because he is giving us time to repent. But is that what we see happening in the lives of the world around us? How about in our own lives? Do we sin and keep going because We weren't immediately zapped for it. Or do we stop? Do we acknowledge our rebellion? And do we turn to God for forgiveness and repentance? The answers to these questions, they they really depend on whether or not we've had that heart transplant that we talked about in the previous section. For those in whom God does not dwell, for those who do not have a new heart, for those who have not trusted in Christ for forgiveness and salvation, confession and repentance Are never the standard reaction. But for followers of Christ, however, our lives should be marked by consistent and continual confession, forgiveness, and repentance. Think about it for a moment. If you knew that the police had you under nonstop 24 hour surveillance, how would your driving habits change? If you knew that everything that you said or did was being watched and recorded and could be held against you, how would that impact the things that you said and did in life? And if you knew that you were constantly being monitored and that you would be caught any time that you did something wrong, yet you continually broke the law anyway, never learning, never sorry for what you had done, what do you think that says about the condition of your heart? But that's exactly what we're doing when we sin against God. God is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is all-present. And even when we think we're getting away with something, we're not. So why does it seem that God is being passive or inactive in response to so many instances of evil and sin? If God is so kind and so good and so just, why do so many people get away with their injustice? Is God really doing anything? Or has he just left us here on earth to fend for ourselves? And I think those are fair questions to ask. However, when we look at God's word and he reveals the answers to us, we need to be prepared to accept them. And I think the answer to these questions is actually found in Romans chapter 1. So I'd like for you to just flip one page over, Romans chapter 1. We're going to pick up at verse 18. It'll also be up here on the screen. Starting in verse 18, Paul says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, how exactly does God reveal His wrath against the world today, in the here and now? How does that happen? Well, I want you to skip ahead just a couple verses. Go to verse 22. Chapter 1, verse 22. I'm going to read 22 through 28. It says, Claiming to be wise, he's talking about sinners here, he's talking about non-believers. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. "...in the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen." "...for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature." And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So... What's going on here in chapter 1? We see Paul in rapid succession uses this phrase, God gave them up. What does it mean when God gives something up? Well, it meant it means that God's righteous and his powerful wrath, they're not always expressed by a bolt of lightning. It's not always demonstrated through fire and brimstone falling from the sky. Instead, his expression of wrath is often far worse. Instead of stopping man in his tracks, God simply lets man do more of what his fallen heart desires. He allows man to rebel against him in, greater and more, in a greater and more frequent capacity. You see, by letting people go, God actually lessens what many theologians call his restraining grace. And this means that in whatever way that God is preventing us or holding us back from being as bad as we could possibly be, He begins to remove that grace and the natural condition of our fallen heart becomes more and more expressed. Listen to the language that Paul uses to describe the men and women who are sinning against God. In verse 21 he says, But they, be, they became futile in their thinking and, in their, foolish, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. Verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Do you see it? God's wrath, at least as it pertains to life on this earth, is not always demonstrated by stopping man from his sin. Instead, he allows man's fallen and sinful heart to have more and more control and input into his actions. And what makes this such a terrible consequence is the second answer as to why God allows man to get away with his sin. So you're in chapter 1. I want you to flip back now to chapter 2, verse 5. It says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart. There's that word again, right? By Paul. You see the heart and the mind. These are the base camps for sin and unrighteousness. He says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. Are you seeing what's now going on here? Because God is all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, and perfectly just, there will be a day when all sin is appropriately punished. There will be a day when God reads out the list of all of our violations and our transgressions. And the longer that list of transgressions, the greater the punishment will be. As Paul said, God will render to each one according to his works. And on that final judgment day, God's word tells us that there will only be two possible verdicts, only two different groups of people who will be present. There are those who are guilty who will spend eternity in hell paying the fair penalty for their sins against God. And then there are those who will be judged as innocent. Not because they were perfect, not because they were good people, not because they were, uh, their good deeds somehow outweighed their bad, as we see in a lot of other religions. But they're found innocent because their record of sin, their record of transgression is wiped clean. Their sins were forgiven and removed. Their iniquity was washed away by something. But not just by anything. It was washed away by the blood of Christ. Man's sins aren't forgiven by what they did, but solely because of what Christ has done. And by what Christ has already accomplished on Calvary. So the heart transplant that we need, the control-alt-delete if you will, on the record of our sins, that can only be received in one way. And that's the, the most amazing part of it all. Forgiveness of sin, free gift that comes only through faith, through a trust that Jesus is the perfect, spotless, sacrificial lamb who lived in your place and lived in my place, who died in your place and died in my place, and was raised to life once again. And when through faith Christ becomes your Savior and your Lord, the idea of it's only wrong if I get caught, the lie that God's really not watching or that he really isn't that interested in what I'm doing, the lie that our sin is not a cosmic act of treason against God, well, that lie, too, begins to melt further and further away from us. The gospel transforms and changes everything. And instead of presuming on God's kindness and living like it's only wrong if I get caught, our perspective and our conviction now becomes it's only right if it agrees with God's word. So as I close our message for today, I want to give out two of what I call walk-away points. These are things that I want you to make sure that you take home with you. Things that I want you to discuss with your family or your friends On the ride home, I want you to to talk about it over lunch. I want you to ponder on it for the rest of the week. Now, if you are not a follower of Christ and you've managed to find your way here to our church this morning, or maybe you've tuned in online, maybe you're watching on Facebook and YouTube, first of all, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you chose to join with us today. And if I can have you walk away with anything from our service this morning, if I could give you one walk away point, It would be this. God is kind, God is gracious, and God is patient. And he has ordained for you to be at this exact place, at this exact time to hear this message that I'm about to share with you, which is this. God loves you so much that he gave his one and only son to trade places with you, to be the sacrificial substitute who atones for your sins and forgives you of all your transgressions. And he did this not so that we could go on sinning without repercussions, but that we may live in righteousness, that we may spend eternity in heaven glorifying and worshiping him. You really only have one of two options right now. You can accept God's free gift of salvation Through repentant faith in Jesus Christ, or God can let you go. He can give you up. And you can continue on in your path of rebellion, storing up more and more wrath for yourself on the day of judgment. Please, please don't let this opportunity for salvation slip away today. Now, for those of you who are followers of Jesus, I have a walk away point for you as well. What are the lies? Or maybe I could say, what are the remnants of the lies that are still influencing your life today? Do we live in a manner that is consistent with the gospel message that we proclaim? Or are we better characterized as do as I say and not as I do? Are we prioritizing God's word and living in obedience to his will? Or are we depending on, it's only wrong if I get caught. Think about all the people that you have interacted with this past week. And now think about what they saw and what they heard from you. Maybe you represented Christ well this past week. Maybe you even had a chance to share the gospel with somebody. Or maybe you blew it and you've got damage control that you now need to do. I want you to always remember that the path of a follower of Christ is not marked by perfect obedience. It's marked by constant confession, gracious forgiveness, and powerful repentance. Let us, in all things, model the message of God's glorious gospel. And those, my brothers and sisters, those are words to live by. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, it's a powerful truth to know who you are, just the awesomeness That you are all present, you are all knowing, you are all powerful, you are perfectly just. But God, you are kind, you are loving, you are forbearing and patient with us. Lord, so that that we may have time to repent, that we may have time to offer our sins at the foot of the cross. That they would be covered by the blood of Jesus. Lord, I don't know who's listening to this message today. I don't know where they are in their lives, but there may be someone who needs to know that forgiveness is available. And it's not based on how good they are, not based on on how good a person or if their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds. They can be forgiven through faith alone in Christ alone. And God, I pray that if there's anybody who needs to hear that, that you would let that message ring in their ears and in their heart today, that you might change their heart Give them that heart transplant and bring them to saving faith in Jesus. Lord, for the rest of us, those who are followers of Christ, I pray that we will be strongly convicted by this word, this passage in Romans, as we see the potential danger of hypocrisy, as we see the danger of presuming on your kindness and your patience. Lord, we're, we're not perfect and we won't be perfect on this side of eternity. But Lord, give us the conviction that we need to confess those sins to you and to confess them to one another, to ask for forgiveness, Lord, and to seek that repentance that you would grant it to us. Lord, that you would uh, change our hearts and our lives. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for each and every person that is here, and I pray that this message will touch each and every one of us.